1: This is especially for those of you who are first-time wrong thinkers, maybe checking us out for the very first time. I'm glad you found this program. I don't know how you found it, but thank you for being part of our growing audience. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors, Monday through Friday, two hours every single day, MonticelloCollege.org, also LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I've thoughtfully listed every one of them in the sponsor section of my daily show notes, which I publish with each podcast episode that goes out, so that you can uh, avail yourself of what my sponsors have to offer, or at the very least, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate this, drop them a note. Let them know that you are hearing their message via this show. I absolutely love it when these sponsors reach out to me and say, hey, someone emailed me this the other day. And, and usually it's a really nice message, so I'm grateful for that. Anyhow, so glad to, uh, to have you on board. What exactly do we mean by wrong think? Well, wrong think is nothing more than just the action of a person who, in a time of growing totalitarianism, in a time of growing domination from the state, Telling us what we can and cannot say, what we can and cannot do. You know, the the kind of atmosphere where everything that's not prohibited becomes mandatory, yeah. That's when you need wrong thinkers who are willing to say, I'm not gonna play this game or I'm not I'm not gonna do that. I actually saw something the other day, this was yesterday I saw this, and it struck me as an incredibly valid point. So I'm I'll just dive in with this and then I've got some other fun stuff to share with you. But the, the pressure that is being brought to bear right now on people who, for a myriad of reasons, choose to remain unvaccinated by the COVID-19 vaccine. It, it, you know, obviously, the only choices we're told that, to, that were given as to why people would, would be averse to taking the vaccine right now is because they're stupid and they're selfish, probably Trump supporters, probably insurrectionists. They, they're grandma killers. And, and I wish I were examining. I, I were exaggerating, rather. I wish that this was just hyperbole. And it's not. This is what you will hear regularly on some of the biggest media platforms in the country, maybe even in the world. So the pressure is intense. Conform. Comply. Submit. And if you understand... You know what freedom is if you understand the value of of taking responsibility for your life and and using that to pursue happiness, not infringing on other people's rights, but you know to pursue your own happiness, you've got to be willing to to set uh, to, to stand out from the crowd and to, well, basically be a bit of a target. And I really wish it weren't so. But that's, that's the condition we find ourselves in today. These are the crazy times in which we live. So here was, here's just something to think about. I know that uh, there are some very uh, strong feelings, one way or the other, about uh, the vaccine. I, I'm trying to be, you know, I'm trying to put this as mildly as possible. What, how do you say there are some strong feelings? No, I hadn't even noticed. Yeah, it's it's... Incredibly difficult for a person to to uh, to make a stand without uh, putting themselves at risk of being seriously uh, seriously uh, pushed back on, and maybe even I don't know attacked. So I have a friend who does voice work. She's marvelous. I mean, she's very sought after. She has a terrific voice, and she posted a sample script from a voiceover job that she could have auditioned for. This is what the sample script said. It said, I'm so much more than a nurse. I'm a daughter, a wife, a mom. And I can't bear the thought of losing anyone to COVID. I've seen too many families grieve. It's gut-wrenching, and it doesn't have to happen. Bottom line, COVID vaccines work. We can trust the science. I know, that's... Wow! Gee, I wonder who would be pushing something like this. Now, here's what my friend said. She says, look... I could have auditioned for this. She says, I see jobs on this topic come up multiple times a day. Testimonial jobs from the perspectives of doctors, nurses, individuals, organizations. And they request a good voiceover artist to make them sound believable. Now, she says, I know this happens with all kinds of, or I know this kind of voiceover job. Testimonials happen with all kinds of topics. But she says, for some reason, the pushing of this particular topic makes me very uncomfortable. It's so politically charged. She says this is very different than talking about a great school or an effective cleaning product. Now, that's pretty cool. I mean, look, I don't know. I don't even know for sure what her stance is on vaccines because she doesn't come right out and say I'm for them or I'm against them. Most people really aren't necessarily against the vaccine. What we are against is the coercive nature of those who would say, you have to have this or else. You do this or we'll create, you know, a medical apartheid. We will actually create an apartheid state where people who haven't submitted to this demand are excluded from participation in society. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but I just I compliment her on following her conscience. It reminds me of the quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you can resolve to live your life with integrity. Let your credo be this. Let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph, but not through me. And, and I don't want to make it sound, you know, too dramatic, but for voiceover people, what you lend your voice to um, can become a matter of, of conscience. You know, there are, there are jobs I would not take if I was lending my voice to something that I absolutely could not support. So I'm grateful to see that my friend is in touch with her conscience. Um, She's got some very interesting and thankfully, I think, some very thoughtful responses from people on all different sides of the vaccine issue. But think about how you use your voice, the things you share on social media, the things you email and send to friends and family and, and even the even the conversations that you have. Oh, what was that I saw that made headlines yesterday? The the I, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. They have a church handbook which is constantly being updated. I mean, it's 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 starting to rival, you know, the federal code in some respects. There's always clarifications. All right, let's have this. Let's have this. One of the things that they came up with um, recently, this was in a recent revision, was discouraging the discussion of political topics at church. Now, I happen to think that's actually a good idea, but it's got some people going, hey, why why shouldn't we discuss political topics? And there's a distinction that I think we have to make here. Some topics become politicized, and that can be a challenge or it can, it can be a problem, um, you know, because it's, it's stuff that really needs to be discussed. Something that affects the family. I'm sorry, just because that becomes politicized. I don't think that should mean it's off limits, but, you know, that's just my opinion. You're welcome to it. But when we put too much time and effort into political discussion, you know, maybe we're missing the purpose of of being at church. Are we there to discuss politics? I mean, it may come up in the course of a discussion, but the larger issue, or at least the larger picture that we should be looking at is, what is the overall plan? As in, what is God's overall plan for creating this world, populating it, etc.? Now I have a quote I want to share with you. This is from Ian Watson. Someone posted this yesterday and I just went, "Man, this is one of the <clears throat> this is one of the coolest quotes I've ever seen." And I think it gives some great context to this intense pressure that's being directed at those who have yet to receive the COVID vaccine. Ian Watson says, "If you have to be persuaded, reminded, pressured, lied to, incentivized, coerced, bullied, Socially shamed, guilt tripped, threatened, punished, and criminalized. If all of this is necessary to gain your compliance, you can be absolutely certain that what is being promoted is not in your best interest. Isn't that excellent? Does that not just hit it right on the head? I happen to agree. And again, as I'm watching people, I'm watching healthcare workers. That are literally getting the the silent treatment from others because now it's understood, hey, she hasn't taken the COVID vaccine yet. Look, it's a personal decision. And it has to remain a personal decision. If we cross that line and we take away the autonomy of people for their own good, right, there's always an excuse, there's always a justification, we're going to end up in a really ugly place. We're already in a pretty ugly place. Would you believe it gets uglier? If history can teach us anything, it's that yes, it certainly can. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: So, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some things related to all of the weird breakdown we see going on around us. Before we get there, I want to give a quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And look, if you are shopping for a home, and I'm, I'm specifically talking to my listeners in Utah, right now it's it's one of the most intense real estate markets that anybody can remember. When a home comes on the market, it is immediately being snapped up by multiple people making multiple offers, sometimes offering a little extra, maybe like 50000 extra, just to sweeten the deal. It's crazy. But such are the times in which we live. So when you need a home loan, you've got to have your things in order and be able to act sooner than later. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage can help you. Decades of experience, stability, and clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. You can visit their office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George or call 435-703-4522. Well, with all the changes taking place around us, there's really never been a better time to learn from the lessons of history. And Doug Casey, in a piece that was published earlier today on LewRockwell.com, has some fascinating historical perspective on currency debasement and cultural degradation. Now, this is done in the form of an interview, and he's asked the question, how instrumental do you think the debasement of their currency was to the eventual fall of the Roman Empire. How did it affect their culture? And I know we well, we're not the Roman Empire, but look, we're following a very similar path, okay? Just if you've looked into the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, you would say, yeah, there are some definite similarities here. Here's Doug Casey's answer. He says in ancient pre-industrial societies just like today, you became wealthy by producing more than you consume and saving the difference. Now, one of the best things about money is that it allows an individual to set aside capital, the product of his labor, in a form that retains value. So, a farmer, for instance, can't save fruit from year to year, nor can a baker save bread. Sound money is critical for lasting gains in wealth and economic progress. Sound money is why wealthy societies become dominant, and a reason other societies are poor and ripe for conquest and domination. So, Rome provides a meaningful long-term template. The Roman government, in search of revenue, started debasing the denarius under Nero in the first century, taking it from 90% silver to 75%. As late as the reign of Marcus Aurelius, which ended in 180, the denarius was still about 75% silver, but by the end of the third century, it was pot metal that was simply plated with silver. The 3rd century was notable for numerous coups, civil wars, assassinations, and secessions. There are plenty of reasons that political chaos goes hand-in-hand with economic chaos. They reinforce each other. So Roman coins weren't worth saving by the middle of the 3rd century, and the collapse of the currency was a major cause of the collapse of the empire. He says, in some ways, sound money was even more important in ancient times than it is today because they didn't have sophisticated banking, financial markets, credit, accounting, or ways of measuring the rate of currency depreciation. Physical cash was king. He also points out that currency inflation creates chaos. Whether in a relatively primitive economy like that of the Romans, where there was still a lot of barter, Once the rulers found they couldn't depreciate the currency anymore, direct taxes went up substantially. But it became hard to collect them, simply because the currency had no value, and the soldiers didn't like being paid with worthless tokens. And this is why, after the reign of Aurelius, the next century was a time of civil wars and general chaos. There was no new construction of roads or public buildings. Those who were able hold up at their country estates, which were internally self-sustaining. This was the beginning of feudalism, a foreshadowing of the coming Dark Ages. And by the accession of Diocletian in in 295, Rome had lost all touch with its Republican roots and become an Oriental-style despotism. And so he even asks, is Rome a distant mirror to today's West? It's entirely possible, says Doug Casey, even likely. The next question he is asked is, well, what parallels can be made today with the U.S. in terms of monetary debasement and overall degradation? And this is where I thought it got really fascinating. Because Doug Casey says the parallels are very direct. And to to understand that, you can just look at the pictures on the coins. See, during the Roman Republic, the consuls didn't put their images on the currency. No, their coins bore images of gods, heroes, or personifications of various virtues. Julius Caesar was the first ruler who dared to put his own image on a coin. It amounted to free advertising. Now, Caesar signed the death warrant for the Roman Republic, followed by Augustus, his adopted son, who was the first actual Roman emperor. From that point until the end, all Roman coins featured the image of the current ruler. Now, in the U.S., we didn't have a picture of a president on a coin until 1909. That's when Lincoln was deified and put on the penny. Before that, pennies featured an Indian. All the other coins had allegorical images, as did Roman coins during its republic. After Roosevelt was elected in 1932, however, things changed. The coins all featured past presidents. Washington replaced a walking liberty on the quarter in 1932. Jefferson replaced the Indian on the nickel in 1938. Roosevelt himself replaced the image of Mercury on the dime in 1946. That was a big step because he was so recently dead. And Benjamin Franklin replaced Liberty on the half dollar in 1947. So since Lincoln, Washington and Jefferson were basically mythical level presidents. Doug Casey says, I suppose an argument can be made for their images on money, but it was unwise since they were really just politicians. And Lincoln had the nerve to have his picture placed on a dollar bill in 1861. Kennedy replaced Franklin on a half dollar in 1964. Replacing allegorical symbols or long-dead founding fathers with the recently deceased politicians is a sign of degradation. We haven't yet put a current ruler on the coinage, but we're getting close. I wonder if they'd consider putting Trump on one of these. Uh, Probably not. He says, of course, gold was the first to go in 1933 with the accession of Roosevelt. Then in 1964, all silver was removed from coins. Current coins look like silver, but they aren't. It's a subtle fraud, symptomatic of the entire U.S. and world, for that matter. They're monetary systems. Technically, since the disks you have in your pocket are tokens, not coins. Now, coins have value in themselves. Tokens, they have no intrinsic value. And then he reminds us back in 1982, the penny, which had been 95% copper and 5% zinc, was changed to zinc with a copper wash on it. So the trend of money has been negative since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, followed by World War I. Doug Casey says currency debasement and war underlie the ongoing moral and economic bankruptcy of the West. The next step you're going to see is the removal of coins from circulation. Few are still worth enough to bother picking up from the ground. There's no longer, they're no longer even useful in parking meters or video games. It costs three cents in metal to create a zinc penny and eight cents for a nickel. And he says both are entirely useless, but all coins are on their way out to be replaced by a digital currency. And Doug Casey says that has interesting societal implications because kids won't be able to collect coins anymore. It's hard to save money digitally. Digits aren't tangible. And kids like real stuff if they're trying to save. So taking the physicality out of the physical reality out of it, rather, out of money, it devalues the concept of money itself. I just, I had to sneak a glance at my piggy bank and start wondering, How many of those uh, pennies in there are pre-1982? My goodness, I may be richer than I thought. (laughs) We'll be back with Doug Casey's commentary in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back.
1: I'm sharing with you a column from Doug Casey. This is actually an interview that was done by International Man. And it's about currency debasement and cultural degradation. One of the reasons I'm sharing this, and I guess I'll risk sounding like a conspiracy nut for even saying such, but I think we are well on our way toward a cashless society. And for some people, that may sound like a good thing. Oh, goody. Well, it's so much more convenient. I mean, I only carry around a plastic card or I just use my Apple Pay and wave my smartphone at whatever I'm trying to pay for. Keep an eye on what happens when your ability to transact with cash is gone. Because what's going to happen is when it when it becomes a digital currency. This means that whoever administers the system, and I think it's safe to assume government will have its hand in the administration of that system. They will have complete, total knowledge of every dime you earn so that you may be more effectively taxed, as well as every dime you spend and what you spend it on. And we hear talk about, you know, the Chinese social credit system or social uh, credit score which is based on how well are you complying with whatever those who are trying to rule you are telling you to do. You could quickly become an unperson simply by having your ability to transact in digital currency frozen. Oh, that would never happen. Really? Talk to me about, uh, you know, again, the, the places that are being urged to don't let unvaccinated people come to your restaurant. Don't let them shop in your store. The mindset's already there. It's not like, gee, they're going to have to cross quite a Rubicon there in order to, you know, to make something like that come about. It's happening right now. Now, just imagine that same zealousness and that same uh, antipathy towards the unvaccinated being directed towards somebody in terms of their ability to transact with digital money. Nope. We just pulled the plug. You're an unperson. Good luck gassing up your car. Good luck finding groceries. Good luck paying your rent. Well, thank goodness for that eviction moratorium then. Ha <laughs> ha. All right, maybe there is a bright side here. Back to the interview. International man asks Doug Casey, "Do you see a relationship between the use of hard money and culture?" And and to put some context behind that, they're talking about much of the spectacular art, music, and architecture in recent money, or in recent history, rather, was created when the average person used gold and silver coins as money. So what do you think the relationship is between the use of hard money and culture? Doug Casey says there is a relationship. Now, maybe it's not directly provable as cause and effect, but he says there's a high correlation between junk money and junk culture. And it's not just a question of arbitrarily changing taste. During the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, older generations would sometimes decry rock and roll music. But the fact is, rock and roll music has stood the test of time. Why? It has melody, rhythm, and in many cases, very poetic lyrics. Rock may be a step down from Bach, Beethoven, or Wagner, but it doesn't make my dog leave the vicinity. But today's popular music, metal, rap, hip-hop, and the rest, they don't even have a melody. It's actively dissonant. The lyrics are almost all coarse and gross. There's rarely any poetry or nobility of emotion. And the same is true of art, says Doug Casey. Much modern art is something that a chimpanzee could paint. In fact, a lot of it is just a scam, a private joke among galleries and critics who compete in bilking the public. The only good thing about most performance art is that it's gone when the performance is over. Now, Doug Casey says, look, I'm not a religious person, but it's clearly a sign of decline when things like Serrano's Piss Christ are considered art and things have become even more degraded since. A lot of art is totally lacking, not only elegance and nobility, but has even less technical skill than Hunter Biden's paintings. Of course, they don't really count as art. That was just about overt bribery. So he says these things would have been met with ridicule and disgust before the 20th century. There's a correlation between the way a civilization expresses itself in art and the money that finances that art. He says, I think that's more than just correlation. This is even true of how people dress. It used to be that when people went out, they wore coats and a tie. Now, of course, styles change, but some modes of dress show respect for oneself and other people. Some don't. Now all you see are T-shirts and torn jeans. They're all symptoms of bad money. Crappy art, crappy music, crappy clothes all go together with crappy culture and crappy money. Next, he is asked about uh, how today countries around the world are inflating and destroying their fiat currencies at breathtaking speed with no end in sight. And in countries with rampant currency debasement, we often see more lying, cheating and stealing as people struggle to make ends meet. So aside from the obvious financial consequences of the ongoing currency debasement, Doug Casey is asked, what social and cultural consequences do you see coming? And this is worth listening to. He says, as bad as a debased currency was for the Roman Empire, it's going to be even worse in our advanced industrial society with its complex, often international supply chains. If you don't know what the real value of money is that you're selling something for, things start falling apart. The state is impinging on almost every area of society. Inflation may be the worst product of government, but taxes and regulations are almost as destructive. In addition, the rewards for not working in the form of welfare and soon guaranteed annual income are so high that it's going to discourage people that would otherwise be entrepreneurs or workers. It's going to encourage them not to set up businesses and simply not to work. Frankly, it's just one thing after another, he says. Could the COVID and vaccine hysterias be the straw that breaks the camel's back? Well, if not, maybe the global warming hysteria will do the trick. Western civilization is being destroyed right before our very eyes. And Doug Casey says, I don't think that trend is going to change until we reach a crisis when things get so bad that there's a revolution. Now, his interviewer then says, well, let's consider historical examples in the U.S. today. Once currency debasement and the degradation of culture have established themselves as long-term trends, what are the chances they reverse? And Doug Casey says, trends in motion tend to stay in motion until they reach a crisis. And then once they do reach that crisis, it can go either way. But things usually get worse again for a while. So things might degenerate slowly into something like the Soviet Union or Mao's China. Or maybe what's left of capitalism and personal freedoms will be overthrown quickly. We can certainly expect no good to come out of Washington now that Americans seem to have elected genuine Bolsheviks to run their government. The old order was overthrown in France in 1789, and it got worse with Robespierre and then Napoleon. Things were terrible in Russia in 1917, but they got worse under Lenin and worse again under Stalin. So he says, I think no matter what happens, we're in for some really grim times. Now, he's next asked about what are the investment implications. Um, Doug Casey says, well, I think people should buy gold and silver and store them in the safest place they can think of, including a stable political jurisdiction outside of your own. And learn to speculate because he says prudent investing is becoming impossible in the kind of environment that we have today. He says, we're very much like Rome in the 3rd and 4th centuries, but the decline is moving at an accelerated pace. Prudent long-term investment is no longer possible the way it was before. You have to think of everything in terms of speculation. So it's unfortunate, he says, but over the next 10 years, everyone is going to be forced to become a speculator just in order to survive. I'm sorry, there's not a happier note there, but Doug Casey has, I think, some very solid perspective here and i think it's definitely worth considering. So, for what it's worth, i'll have a link to his article. There are links within the article. You can find it at the in the show notes at the dot com. Just want to take a quick moment here before we go to break and uh, and just tell you that i have this wonderful sponsor, lifesavingfood.com. I have a link in the show notes today. These are show notes for August 5th, 2021. And I'd like to ask you to click on that link, take a look at the different food storage packages, the different options that they have, and think about, you know, whether you need to shore up a few areas in your own personal preparations. Now, just to be perfectly clear, every time one of my listeners buys from lifesavingfood.com, you not only support your own you know, well-being and your own self-reliance, but you also help to support this show. So it's greatly appreciated. I'm trying hard not to twist your arm, but at the same time, this is one of those things that, uh, you know, while there is still plenty of uh, food storage, and we're talking 25-year shelf life, this this is good stuff. While it's available, this is the time to quietly stock up. Don't uh, wait until people start getting panicky. And there's some interesting rumors floating around about what may or may not happen next week. I mean, the president's got a press conference coming up, I believe, on Monday. And it's it's already causing some weird, well, panic buying in, in the stores. So be aware. Don't be scared. But keep quietly and consistently building your self-reliance i'm just very happy to have a sponsor that could help you do that we'll be back in just a moment
0: this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show And
1: we are back. This is the final segment for this hour of The Brian Hyde Show. Feel free to drop by my website. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Maybe subscribe to the podcast. Tell a few friends. Drop a note to me. Tell me to straighten up and fly right. Come on, it wouldn't be the first time somebody's had to do it. Let's talk about freedom in the coming time of madness. And I almost feel like there's a little bit of an apocalyptic cloud hanging over me today, but... I'm looking at what's going on, and and as much as I want to be positive and tell you, hey, everything's okay. You know, the best context I can give you is this. When I need reassurance, I just remind myself of something that Ammon Bundy told me many years ago, which was calm your heart and remember who is really in charge. Now, he's talking about the creator of the universe, and that's definitely a direction I tend to look when I need the reassurance that, hey, there are bigger forces at play here than simply power-hungry individuals all around me. But I'm also trying to be a realist. And while I don't want to create fear and I don't want to create more anger than, than already exists, I feel like I have a duty to speak up about what's going on and what I see. And, and you know, I've mentioned this before. I'm, I'm a very, uh, very strong advocate of fourth turning methodology which is a way of looking at history through a cyclical lens rather than just, oh, it's a linear timeline with little hash marks here and there for events and people that, you know, made some kind of a splash. So referring to a coming time of madness, I don't think is unreasonable because historically those cycles and and especially first, second, third and fourth turnings take place like the seasons of the year. We are in the midst of a fourth turning right now. We are racing toward a crisis, and I don't know what it's going to look like on the other side of that crisis. Previous fourth turnings that we have been through included the Great Depression and World War II, what uh, people mistakenly refer to as the Civil War, but the war between the states and Reconstruction, and then, of course, the American Revolution and founding period. Those were all 4th turning crises. And, and you can tell what they all had in common was there was, a, there was a very clear sense that freedom hung in the balance. Nobody knew how things would look once the dust settled. And I feel like we're in a very similar situation today. Maybe the stakes are a little bit higher. So I wanted to give you some perspective, courtesy of Judge Andrew Napolitano, when he talks about freedom in the time, coming time of madness. He says, sadly, we are approaching a time in America during which our elected public officials will assault the liberties we have hired them to protect. Whatever the cause, the government will soon blame its failures to contain a virus on a small portion of the population and then impose restrictions on the inalienable rights of all of us. And he's very clear we cannot allow this to happen again. He says, during the Civil War, when President Abraham Lincoln thought it expedient to silence those in the northern states who challenged his wartime decisions by incarcerating them in military prisons, he was rebuked afterward by a unanimous Supreme Court. Now, the essence of the rebuke was that no matter the state of difficulties, whether war or pestilence, the Constitution protects our natural rights and its provisions are to be upheld when they pinch as well as when they comfort in good times and in bad. So Judge Napolitano says whether COVID-19 is coming back or not, our central planners have panicked. We do not have a free market in the U.S. in the delivery of health care. Rather, we have thousands of pages of statutes, regulations, and controls at the federal, state, and local levels. And those controls were revealed as manifestly deficient the last time around. The feds were so protective of their control of health care, an area of governance that the Supreme Court has ruled is nowhere delegated to them in the Constitution. And but for their power to tax those who define them, defy them, rather, is non-existent, that they insisted that the only only the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta could be trusted to test for the virus. Now, it took weeks of begging by governors and mayors and healthcare professionals for the feds to relent. Of course, once they acknowledged that labs throughout the country were as competent as theirs, they realized that their incompetence had deprived all physicians, as well as most private sector and state government-owned labs, of the test kits themselves. He says we all know how central economic planning diminishes freedom, produces scarcity, and adds to the cost of products. Now we know that the central micromanagement of healthcare kills people. But these mayors and governors were not to be outdone by the feds in their totalitarian impulses. Many of them issued decrees that are as profoundly unconstitutional as Lincoln's efforts to silence dissent. Come on, this is still within recent memory. They ordered the closing of most businesses and nearly all retail establishments. They acted as if they, and not we, owned our faces. They shuttered religious institutions. It took a year for the courts to interfere partially with this madness. And he says the fulfillment of these totalitarian impulses put millions out of work, closed and destroyed thousands of businesses, and impaired the fundamental rights of tens of millions, all in violation of numerous sections of the Constitution that totalitarians swore to uphold. And his point is that now they're threatening to do this again. The Contracts Clause of the Constitution prohibits the states from interfering with lawful contracts such as leases and employment agreements. The Due Process Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment prohibits the states from interfering with life, liberty, or property without a trial at which the state must prove fault. The Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment requires just compensation when the state meaningfully interferes with an owner's chosen lawful use of his property. And Judge Napolitano says, taken together, these causes reveal significant protections of private property in the Constitution. Add to this the threat of punishment that accompanied these decrees and the fact that they were executive decrees, not legislation. And one can see the paramount rejection of basic democratic and constitutional principles in the minds and words and deeds of those who have perpetrated them. And he says, add to all this the protection in the First Amendment of the rights to worship and associate and elsewhere the judicially recognized right to travel. And it is clear that these nanny state rules were profoundly unconstitutional, indisputably unlawful, and utterly unworthy of respect or compliance. And so he asks, why is this happening again? He says, throughout history, free people have been willing to accept the devil's bargain of trading liberty for safety when they are fearful. We supinely accept the shallow and hollow offers of government that somehow less liberty equals more safety, but it doesn't. This is the government's dream, dominance without resistance. This happened here with the Alien and Sedition Acts in the 1790s, when the Federalists feared a second revolution and punished speech critical of them. During the Civil War, when Lincoln feared dissent and Congress feared defeat and they locked-up innocence. During World War I, when President Woodrow Wilson punished the speech he hated and feared. And during the Great Depression, when President Franklin D. Roosevelt feared economic calamity and seized property without compensation. And after 9-11, fearing another attack... Congress secretly crafted the Patriot Act's circumvention of the Fourth Amendment and authorized the creation of a total surveillance state. Now, of course, just a year ago, we free people were all in lockdown, a word used to describe confining prisoners to their cells. This sordid history came about when the public was fearful of the unknown and trustful of the government's bargain. But the liberty that was sacrificed for the safety that was promised is being taken away again. Now, Judge Napolitano just, he cuts right to the chase here. Liberty is natural and personal. You can sacrifice yours, but, I, but you cannot sacrifice mine. Thus, personal liberty, the Declaration of Independence calls our rights inalienable. And the Ninth Amendment reflects freedom's nature as limitless is insulated from totalitarian and even majoritarian interference. He says, today the fear of contagion again gives government cover for its assaults on freedom and poses a question the government does not want to answer. If liberty can be taken away in times of crisis, is it really liberty? Or is it just license via a temporary government permission slip subject to the whims of the politicians in power? That is a hard question. That ought to shake most thinking people right to their core. Because that's sure how government is acting. His point is we cannot permit this to happen again. If you're one of the brave few who feels that, uh, hey, this isn't right, I can't go along with this, my freedom does matter. First of all, I understand if you are feeling alone, if you're feeling isolated and singled out for abuse... It's not your imagination. You're not suffering from a victim complex. This is the price that, unfortunately, is required right now for anyone who will stand for such principles. I hope you find some encouragement and camaraderie in what I share with you on this program. You most certainly are not alone, even if we seem terribly outnumbered.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.